You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about science getting personal. We've got two stories for you from scientists who unexpectedly found their lives imitating their science, or vice versa. I experienced some science personally uh, myself this past week when I flew to our recent show in Boise, Idaho with a sinus infection. It turns out, and here's a science fun fact for you, when you fly with a lot of fluid in your head and you go through some turbulence, you can, in fact, pop a hole in your eardrum. I did not know that, so when my brain exploded and trickled out my ear, I was somewhat startled. But uh, shout out to Boise's St. Luke's Urgent Care and their luxurious and diverse selection of Mucinex at the downtown Rite Aid location. Thank you for taking care of me, Boise. I am uh, mostly better now. Our first story this week is from Philip Camella. It was recorded in July 2018 at Caveat in New York City. The theme that night was transformation. So about five years ago, I'm sitting in the basement bathroom of my first job with my head in my hands as my boss is shrieking her voice through the crack. Phil, are you in the bathroom again? We are not paying you to poop. And as much as I hated her, and trust me, I hated her, I had to admit that the bathroom breaks were getting a little excessive, but I never really thought too much of it. Going to the bathroom is healthy. It just shows I have a fast metabolism. If all of you go to the bathroom once, twice a day, I'm going to the bathroom like eight to 12 times a day. It just shows that I'm eight to 12 times healthier than all of you. (laughs) And I don't need to go to the doctor for being too healthy. But on poop number six before noon on that particular day, (laughs) there was blood. And not just a little bit of blood, like a lot of blood. So I went to the doctor, and I explained that I'm bleeding out when I go to the bathroom. And he says, well, do you have a family history of this? And I said, well, kind of. My grandfather had colon cancer, and he actually had very similar symptoms to this all the way up until he died one day after going to the bathroom. So I'm a little concerned. And he says, don't worry, you're in good hands now. Bend over and take off your pants. <laughs> so he's going out doing his excavation work, snaps off his glove and says, definitely hemorrhoids. Squirt this ointment up your butt for the next two months. You'll be cured. If not, come back. I said, great. So for the next two months, I squirt this ointment up my butt. But to my surprise, I don't get any better at all. I actually get way way worse. 
it gets so bad at one point. I'm actually buying maxi pads to line the inside of my boxers because I'm bleeding even when I'm not using the bathroom. And let me assure you, maxi pads are not designed for people with testicles. <laughs> Those winglets stick to everything. <laughs> everything. So I go back to the doctor and I explain to him how I'm a 22-year-old man having his period for the first time and it's, it's not going well. And he agrees and he says, all right, we're going to have to do a surgery. And so with the surgery, I need someone to come pick me up. And so I call my girlfriend over and she doesn't really know all of this. My kind of bloody poops didn't really come up during pillow talk. And so I never really told her because I was honestly kind of ashamed of it. It's not really a sexy disease. No protagonist in a movie is getting diagnosed with perpetual poop. It would really change the ending of Fault in Our Stars. So I never really told anyone about it. And so when I'm telling her, it's kind of hitting her in waves. And at the end of it, I say, well, listen, can you, can you come pick me up at the hospital on Friday? And she says, I actually can't because I'm seeing someone else. Which wasn't really the expectation. It wasn't really what I was expecting to hear. And so we talked for a little while, and she ultimately took all of her stuff out of the apartment and leaving it a very kind of cold and vacant place, which is fitting because that's exactly how it felt. And then I'm scrolling through my phone, and I get an email from my boss, the terrible shrieking woman from before. And in the email, it says, Dear Phil, although you have the sick leave to take off, you have not given me an exact detailed message explaining the procedure, so I am not granting you the time off. And people have their limit to the amount of stress and trauma they can take. And then they go into what's known as the fight or flight response. And on that day, I said, fuck it, let's fight. So I hit reply all. <laughs> as, as a few of you have. And I said, not only is this a violation of my HIPAA rights, it's a violation of the employee handbook, cited the section, and don't worry about it because I'm never coming back to work ever again. And the moment I hit send on that email, a countdown started. Because now I only have until the end of the month for health insurance. So I call the doctor the next day and I say, not only do I not have someone to come pick me up on Friday, I also don't have health insurance the next two weeks. So we have to conjure this plan. And it has some sacrifices to it. I can't, uh, I don't have enough time to do the proper pre-op or post-op. And the surgeon that we're, we had originally scheduled can't do it anymore, so we have to find a general surgeon who doesn't specialize in this stuff and so the primary care physician contacted him and said, listen, just cut out anything that's like bloody and necrotic. And he said, sure. <laughs> so we do the procedure and I feel better. But about a month later, the blood comes back. So I call the doctor because I can't afford to physically go see him anymore. And he says, listen, there's a chance that you're just one of the small percentage of people that just has chronic hemorrhoids. And there's nothing we can do about that. And so I just kind of have to accept that as fact. I have to accept that as the new me. I am the chronic hemorrhoid hero. It's a secret identity. I don't tell anyone. It's like any other superpower or any other superhero. 
My only superpower is that I have to shit every hour on the hour, so I get pretty good at telling time, which I guess is the only, the only benefit. But I never really change my mind on that. It's just, it's just something I have to accept as fact. So I change my whole life to kind of accept this new power. And I don't rethink it for years until a couple months ago when I take a road trip with a few friends. On this road trip, we're going down the East Coast. We're coming back. It's like a 20-hour straight driving at the end of it. And we get to the Lincoln Tunnel, and I am awoken in severe pain. And I'm just like, ah, oh, shit. We're so close. It's 20 hours of driving. We're like this close to getting home. I can, I can deal. I can hold it. But the Lincoln Tunnel and traffic, which is New York's most terrifying villains, have a different plan in mind. And so we get to the bottom of the Lincoln Tunnel, and I'm not doing well at all. So I kind of whisper to my friends who don't know about this secret identity. I say, um, listen, I'm not doing too well. <laughs> and they said, well, we're driving as fast as we can. We'll get there soon enough. And that's when I start shaking. That's when I start sweating. That's when my stomach starts cramping. So by the time that we get to the end of the Lincoln Tunnel, we hit that first red light, and my brain shuts down. And I go back in this fight-or-flight response. This time, I chose flight and just kicked open the door and started sprinting. So it's 9 in the morning, I'm sprinting down the street, and I'm running up to these restaurants, and I'm like hammering on the door, and I'm please let me use your bathroom, please let me use your bathroom. It's like, no bathroom, no bathroom. Go to the other place. We're hammering on the door. They say, no baño, no baño, Port Authority. And I'm like, okay. So I'm sprinting down the street. I'm like pushing over grandmas. I'm hurtling taxis. I'm running as fast as I possibly can. I see the door. It's held open by a rock. I fling it open. I run down the hallway. I see the elevator. I'm mashing the button, but nothing's happening. And so I'm starting to look at other options here. And that's when I see the bowling shoes and the bowling balls behind this long desk. I'm not in the Port Authority. I'm in the bowling alley next to the Port Authority, and they're not open yet. I don't know why the door is held open by a rock. So my brain just starts working in overdrive. Like, how much time do you have left? How much pain are you in? How much sweat have you lost? And at that point, it flashes in front of me. You're out of time. Jump the desk. So I jump over the desk. I kick over the phone and the pens find a trash can, drop my pants. And I don't know how many of you have ever broken into a bowling alley at night in the morning <laughs> to shit in a trash can, but it's a very coming to Jesus sort of moment. <laughs> it really allows you to rethink just about everything about yourself. And it's in that moment where I thought, maybe this isn't hemorrhoids. <laughs> maybe this is something different. So at that time in my life, like I said, a few years had passed. I'm a graduate student, and I'm preparing for my thesis proposal, and that's just a formal way of telling the school what I plan to do for the next eight years of my life, and, uh, which is terrible. Um, but my, my plan is to basically create this machine learning tool that can read um, genetics and then spit out a diagnosis. 
And my boss kind of tells me, well, what do you want to use that for? And I said, listen, I don't really care what we use it for because I just need a lot of data to do the, f- the first try. So he says, all right, we have a really good data set and ulcerative colitis. Just go for it. So I write it up. I get it finalized and formalized and it's accepted. So this becomes my thesis. And I have my first meeting with the ulcerative colitis group. And they say, well, what do you know about ulcerative colitis? And I said, well, I actually don't know a whole lot because I spent my whole time kind of trying to figure out the technical sides of this. And they said, okay, ulcerative colitis is a chronic autoimmune disease. And most people are familiar that the immune system is there to like protect you against viruses and bacteria and other things that make you sick. But on occasion, it will go rogue and it'll act as a double agent. And in the case of ulcerative colitis, it will start attacking your, your intestines. So after hearing that, I'm like, wow, that sounds terrible you know what what can you tell me about the patients and the, so they started describing the data set and they said well listen we have a lot of people between their mid-20s to mid-30s they have a range of intestinal complications and they often go misdiagnosed for years and i kind of get this like out-of-body experience <laughs> like someone is talking about me to me <laughs> She could have said, listen, ulcerative colitis patients are like this tall, have, have dark hair, and their girlfriends often break, break up with them during a flare-up. And I'm like, that sounds pretty familiar. So I call a new doctor once I get out of the meeting, and I tell him I have ulcerative colitis. And he's like, listen, just because WebMD says so. I'm like, no, I'm well past that. All right, we're well past WebMD. I want... I want a colonoscopy, I want histology, biopsies. If it's an ology, I want them looking at this. <laughs> and so we do all these procedures. He pulls me into his office when the results are done, and he says, Philip, I'm sorry to tell you, but you are not the chronic hemorrhoid hero. You are the ulcerative colitis champ. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd never been more relieved to have a chronic autoimmune disease because I spent years wearing this misdiagnosis that just didn't fit me. And I would like to take credit, you know, for discovering this myself, but that's not really what happened. This transformation was more just being flexible to new information as it came to me. And so... After some medications that I'll probably have to take for the rest of my life and some pretty heavy diet changes, I, for the first time in five years, am pooping once a day. (laughs) And that's a superpower I will gladly bear. Thank you. That was Philip Camilla. Philip is pursuing a Ph.D. in biomedical sciences at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. His research includes machine learning and genetics in an effort to better diagnose patients and simulate disease. Speaking of things getting personal, the work we do at Storic Lighter is personal to us. Good segue, right? So if you believe in the importance of true personal stories about science like we do or you're just entertained by this podcast— Please consider writing us a review and subscribing on iTunes. It helps us move up the rankings so that more folks can discover this podcast, and we really appreciate your help with that. Our next story today is from Kelly Ramol. It was recorded in March 2018 at Caveat in New York City at our annual show in conjunction with Brain Awareness Week. It was a brisk... Saturday in October a few, a few years ago. 
Uh, I was in, I was shopping for winter coats for my children. They were ages one and three at the time. Uh, it was a nice way to spend a weekend after a long week at work. Uh, I'm a neuroscientist by training. I'm an educator by vocation. And I, I've always been fascinated by the brain, uh, even since childhood, the way this, this piece of biology in our head determines everything about who we are, our, our, our movements, our feelings, our dreams. And as I was in the store balancing a diaper bag and my children running, uh, toddling about, and I had some hangers of little jackets dangling from my wrist, I coughed three times, one, two, three. And I was struck with a headache so painful, I almost fell to my knees. It felt like razor blades were being dragged across the back of my head from the inside. With a rising sense of panic, I realized I had to get out of the store. I dropped this, the jackets in a puddle on the floor, and I got my kids safely outside to my car. I strapped them in so I knew they'd be safe, and I got myself into the front seat of the car. I reclined back, not sure what to do next, and quickly the headache kind of went away, uh, leaving me shaken but safe enough to drive home. So that weekend passed in kind of a haze of headaches. Uh, I wasn't quite sure what was going on. Um, at one point, my little son, uh, a year old, um, was crying on the floor. And out of habit, I reached down, I scooped him up, and put, brought him in my arms to comfort him. And I was struck by another one of these headaches, so painful, it brought tears to my eyes. I passed him to my husband, Lucas, uh, for, his, for him to comfort him. And I went to lay down to, to get rid of this headache. And uh, my husband and I he, uh, talked about this, um, but you know we were confused, but not quite sure. He's an anesthesiologist, a physician, but he doesn't know much about headaches. And so Monday came around. I went to work because I always go to work on Mondays, uh, and I saw a neurologist in the afternoon. So I explained to her these weird headaches. I explained to her uh, you know, what was going on. She said, OK, let's do a neuro exam. It's the kind of exam where they test your hearing, your vision. She had me stand on my tiptoes, walk in a straight line, heel, toe, heel, toe, stand with, uh, straight up and down with my feet together and my eyes closed. Everything was normal. Uh, she ordered an MRI, just in case, and sent me home. A few days later, she called me. There'd been a finding, and I was kind of taken aback, I, and she explained that the back of my brain uh, in this region called the cerebellum was lower than it should be. And picture this, uh, think of a brain floating in a sink, um, and the skull is the sink, and the pipe leading down is like the spine, and the brain floats in this sink, uh, and the liquid is called cerebral spinal fluid, and it runs back and forth between the spine and the brain, or around the spine and the brain, up and down. And she's in the back of my brain, the cerebellum was kind of almost plugging that drain a little bit. And she said, some people are born with this. It's called Chiari, and they may never know it. That doesn't even give them problems. But you should probably follow up with a neurosurgeon just in case. So I called my husband, and he started Googling, because even physicians use Google. And he learned what he could about Chiari, basically what the doctor had told me. Um, but there were pieces of my headaches and my symptoms and my family history that wasn't quite adding up. He started searching medical databases. He found that there was this kind of rare condition where you, uh, people can develop a leak out of the lining of the pipe, out of their spine. And this, the cerebral spinal fluid can leak out of these, this little tear. And 
and it kind of matched what was going on, but it didn't actually cause Chiari, so that didn't quite make sense. And um, but then he kept reading, and he saw some, he looked in the medical literature, he saw some case studies, and there was this, some cases where people had a leak, and then they had Chiari, and and it, it mattered whether they had Chiari before or Chiari after, because if you do a surgery for Chiari, then you're opening up the drain, but that actually makes the brain sink more. So obviously you don't want to do that. So this was all confusing, but I, and I was, still was feeling worse, but I was still going to work. And uh, I was reducing my hours, still going in for an important, important meetings. So I remember one day I went in and I was sitting around a conference table with my boss and my other senior leaders. And I was getting uncomfortable in this meeting. And every time I shifted in my chair, I was kind of getting a headache. But I was like tolerable, so I kept going. I didn't say anything. And then I coughed once, and this head, my head just exploded in pain. And I just remember pushing back and stumbling out of the room, embarrassed, but doubled over in pain at the same time. My boss helped me find an empty office, and I lay down on the floor on the carpet, my legs under the desk, and, and just lay there recovering. So I stopped going into work after that, but I kept working from home. I would take phone calls lying flat on my bed, um, not even with a pillow, because the more horizontal I was, the better. I would type with my laptop on my hips and trying to kind of see the screen, but it would crane my neck, and it's kind of a mess. Um, but I kept doing this and waiting for this appointment with the neurologist, or with the neurosurgeon that the neurologist had recommended. So finally, I get this, uh, get in to see uh, the neurologist, uh, sorry, to see the neurosurgeon, and uh, explain to him what happened. And my husband is there, and I'm kind of getting confused with the details at this point because this, just my mental state was just not what it should be. And he listens, and he looks at my MRI, and he says, "Well, yeah, that looks like a Chiari." He said, let's do a neuro exam. And so we did the same thing, like vision, hearing. Um, he had me uh, stand on my tiptoes, but this time my legs wobbled like crazy. And he, this, he had me walk heel toe, heel toe, and this time I, I couldn't. I stumbled, my, hand, my hands flew out to try to find my balance. This time when he asked me to close my eyes and stand, um, I swayed so much that Lucas had to catch me. It was clear I was getting worse and fast. He admitted that that you know that was strange, and and Lucas outlined this theory that you know what if it's a leak, and what if it caused a Chiari, and and the the neurosurgeon, this like really eminent neurosurgeon. I'd watched him on uh, New York Med, that reality show about uh, physicians, and he had taken a, a tumor the size of a baseball out of this kid's head, and the kid survived. And it was this great story. Like this guy's at the top of his field. And he's like, okay, that's a nice theory, but like, you're an anesthesiologist, like, thanks, but no thanks. And he said, really, without a scan of your brain before you got sick, there, you know, I am not really, we can't really jump to conclusions. And I sat up in my chair and I was like, I do have a scan of my brain from four years ago. I was involved in this education program about the brain at Neurodome, and I was the brain model. So. <laughs> I have this scan from this other institution. It's across the city. It's four years ago. And he's like, oh. And then really quickly, he like starts typing on his computer and click, click, click. And it's like CSI, brain scan. <laughs> and he brings up my image from four years ago. <laughs> and there in front of us, side by side, so obvious that even someone without a medical degree could see my brain had changed in the past four years. And he's like clicking through this in his head. And he turns to me and he's like, 
I've never seen a case quite like this before. And he said, this, this is serious, but you're unlikely to die. <laughs> I'm like, you're the doctor here. You're the one on TV taking out these tumors. And you're telling me, A, you've never seen this before, and B, you can't rule out death? So I'm like struggling with this. And he says, you, you can't keep working. And so I take his word for it this time. Uh, I didn't listen to my husband, but I listened to this doctor. And so I, I, um, he didn't have a whole lot to offer me. We, he, um, we did some scans at Columbia to try to find this leak, uh, inconclusive. Um, I went, over the next few months, I went to a series of doctors in the local area, different institutions, different departments, different people, all looking for answers. And every time it was like, oh, maybe it's a Chiari. And my husband would be like, no, maybe it's not. And so it was back and forth, and let's look for a leak. And we couldn't find a leak. And, we tried to treat for a leak, but inconclusive, not a little bit helpful, not really. And so I found myself, uh, I, the headaches were getting worse and worse. I was getting like 100 a day. I, I couldn't lift my kids. I knew how to not do that, as painful as that was. But I couldn't avoid the sneezes and the just rolling over in bed. And all of these things would cause this like 30-second calamity in my head. So I had to keep searching for answers. So um, all the doctors said, you really need to see some experts in this. There aren't that many, but there is a group in, uh, at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. These are the doctors that literally wrote the book on this. So that's where I went for a series of visits over a few months. And they did some tests, and they did their imaging. And they were scratching their heads and admitted that we were really working on the edge of medical knowledge here. But I was desperate. And they said, uh, finally, we got to the point where they said, we only have one last test, really, one last procedure to give you to try to treat a leak. And they said, we don't really know where this leak is, if it's a leak, uh, but we can do this test. It's a lot of uh, radiation because it's a CT scan. Um, and I said, do it, do it. It's like, it's, I gotta do something. So, um, so I went, uh, they anesthetized me, they identified 22 spots along my spine that were weak and could have a tear in them, and they injected them with blood, my own blood, and a little bit of biological glue, and they uh, sent me home. And I waited, and I waited. And over the next, not days, but over weeks and months, I started to get a little better. I started to add back my home routines. Um, I started to engage more with my kids, with, with Lucas. Um, I started to add back work very slowly, mostly from home, um, but really started to feel a little bit more like myself. And, but it wasn't enough. I still wasn't picking up my kids. I wasn't engaged. I wasn't back at work like I wanted to be. And um, so I went back to the Mayo Clinic, and they said, well, we, we, have, we can do this, but only one more time. Because of the amount of radiation, because of your age, you can't, you just can't take, your body can't take that much radiation without putting you in a, a very risky zone. And I said, look, it's, it's all I've got. Let's do it. And so uh, on a cold October day, about a year after those first headaches, uh, I went in, and they did it again, and they found those weak spots, and they injected them with blood and glue, and they sent me home. And I waited, and I waited, and it, not over days, but over weeks and over months, I started to feel really, truly better. And uh, one day, my uh, little guy, who then was two and a half, um, he was crying over some slight his sister did to him, and I picked him up, I scooped him up into my arms, and I didn't 
got a headache this time. And I snuggled him into me and I said, it's going to be okay. And this time, instead of tears of pain, I had tears of joy because I knew that what was so important to me was with me all along. That was Kelly Rimmel. Kelly is the Senior Director of Scientific Programs at Columbia University's Zuckerman Mind-Brain Behavior Institute. Nationally recognized for her science outreach work, she worked previously at the American Museum of Natural History and has consulted on a number of projects, including Neurodome, a planetarium show about the brain. The Storklider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation, End of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and me, Aaron Barker, with help from our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Nissa Greenberg, Paula Croxon, Tracy Rowland, and me, Aaron Barker. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Caveat for hosting these shows and to the fine folks at the Kleenex Corporation for figuring out a way to infuse tissues with Vicks VapoRub. Y'all are goddamn geniuses. Thanks for listening. <laughs>